welcome to Creative Piecemeal Podcast, a podcast for creatives. I'm your host, Tammy Takeishi. Join me for compelling conversations with artists, actors, authors, musicians, and other creatives about the impact of the creative and fine arts in their lives and our ever-changing world. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Creative Piecemeal. I'm your host, Tammy Takeishi, and today I am with Andrew A.S. Hatch, author and friend of mine. A.S. Hatch grew up in Thornton Cleveland, a small town near Blackpool. After graduating with a degree in journalism, he moved to Taipei, Taiwan, where he taught English as a foreign language for two years before moving to Melbourne, Australia. Andrew returned to the UK in 2013 and now lives in London, where he works in political communications. He began writing fiction at university, and his novel Los Gigantes was shortlisted for the Luke Bitmead Prize in 2013, and his short story Flies was chosen by Wordbooks Ltd. as their short story of the month in October 2012. His current novel, This Little Dark Place, which is fantastic, I highly recommend it, is available at booksellers worldwide. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Hello. Well done on the pronunciations of those obscure places, by the way. Cleveland, spot on. Melbourne, <laughs> spot on. A lot of people say Melbourne, including my mum, but um, you got it right, so mazel tov on that. Thank you. Oh, you know, I, I credit my my love of, of uh, British shows for all those pronunciations. <laughs> well done. And your love of geography, of course. Right. <laughs> Such a geography nerd. So excited to have you on this show. Um, before we jump yeah. into current projects, uh, I'd love to start with who or what inspired you to become an author? Who or what? Um, I guess you could answer this in both ways then, couldn't you really? I, I'm going to say, I know it's a basic answer really to name an author, but it was love of reading that got me into writing. And Probably it was a wild sheep chase by Haruki Murakami that did it. Yeah. So I don't know if you knew that, but um, yeah, I, I fell in love with, with that book. And so I was a voracious reader when I was a little kid from, say, the age of seven, maybe six even, all the way through to 11. And then I went to high school, we call it. I, it, I don't know what grade that would be in America, but we call it high school. And I just stopped reading. Um, it wasn't a conscious decision. And then I only started reading again when I was about 19. So there's a massive gap. And the book that did it was a friend of mine who's a real Japanophile and he taught himself fluent Japanese to the extent that he moved over there and worked as a translator in the fashion industry. Amazing guy. He said, Hatch, you'll, you'll really love this author, Murakami. And obviously Murakami is world famous. I, I, as I say, hadn't read a book for about eight years by that point. So I was like, okay, whatever. And wow, it was, it was like fireworks going off my head. I, I couldn't believe actually that fiction could be so contemporary because the books I'd read as a boy were the, were the typical stuff like Lord of the Flies, The Hobbit, classic adventure stories written in sort of an, an archaic mid 20th century sort of way about you know fantastical stuff and then Murakami's writing about having a beer and making spaghetti and and cats 
and you know everyday relationships and it really chimed with me at that point in in my life and I read the first half of it on a beach in Spain and then I read the next half of it and on the plane home and then I read the rest of it back home so this was a summer holiday in between I think my first and second year of uni and then I just started writing straight away it just started coming out of me so I wrote this um really like it's probably not very good now but um I mean I was 19 I read that I wrote this I wrote a thousand words basically describing my flight home from that holiday because it did inspire me I just thought wow you don't need to have the world's biggest vocabulary to write and I know it's translated from Japanese to English although he does write in English first and then translates it to Japanese I think that's what he does these days I don't know what sort of linguistic acrobatics he's performing there but that's a tidbit for you but um, even so, the language in it was so everyday. It was it was graspable and relatable, and I just thought that is really really cool, and I can give it. I can give that a go because I'm a relatively intelligent guy. I was studying journalism, so I was writing all the time, sort of these you know process driven articles designed for newspapers. Um, but I thought I wanted to be a bit more creative, so um, why don't I try and copy Murakami? And I basically just copied Murakami, and then I made that into a whole novel which no one mercifully will ever read. Um, and it is such a rip-off of Murakami, it's untrue. There's like a talking dog in there and everything. Um, so I would say that moment on that beach in Spain, when I had an ice cream and a book in my hand, was when I thought, wow, anyone can do this. And obviously there's a bit, a bit of hubris involved there, because obviously not everyone can do it. But um, I think that's what started it. And the other aspect of your question was what inspired me? So, uh, or the flight home, actually, it was the flight home that inspired me because it was so dreadful. There was such a smelly person next to me, I remember. And I just thought, uh, I'm going to I'm going to use this. I'm going to write about this and use that as catharsis to whinge about this horrible flight with this stinky person next to me. So, yeah, it doesn't always have to come from (laughs) something positive. But yeah, that's how I started. And I virtually never stopped writing since then. And that was God, I'm 35 now, so do the, do the math, as, as you would say in America. We would say do the maths, but... That sounds really, really interesting. I, this is one of my favorite questions that I ask the guests is who or what inspired them to go on to what they've done. And I just love the diversity of the answers. And it's so interesting that yours is, it was just like this one author just changed your whole life. Yeah, and I just went on a massive murakami binge after that i've since learned my lesson to space out good things in your life you need to stretch out the joy in um so for example i'll go back to writing in a second i've only recently started playing dark souls 3 because i'm so desperate not for it not to be over so i've been putting it off for ages i've started playing it now but back then i didn't know that's what you should do with good things so i just binged it all i read uh, all of i basically read everything he'd ever written throughout the rest of my university career um, and it was some of the best moments of my life. I, I remember third year at uni reading um, A Wind Up Bird Chronicle, which is a, a quite a meaty one. And I remember my mates going out. We were back in the halls of residence in third year. And they were like, are you coming out hatch? And, you know, you just have your door wide open. People just wander in and out. And I was just, my nose was in this book. And I had just forgotten about this big night out they were all having because I've been reading all afternoon. And then I was like, actually, no, I'm going to stay in and read. And I was still reading when they got in at 3 a.m. And I've, I vividly remember that. Yeah, I, I guess you can't get into a video game or a film in that same deep way that you can with a book. 
And I was just never without Murakami. And then after uni, when I'd caught up with his entire back catalogue, I had to wait a bit for a, a book to come out. And by that point, I was officially, you know, a fanboy. I was a reader. You know, I was looking ahead to, I was Googling when this guy's next thing was coming out which I'd never done with anything other than video games before. Um, so, And it was After Dark that came out, I think it was 2007 or 2008. And um, yeah, it, it is strange, but um, because looking back now, my I would say my reading taste has become a bit more refined and uh, way more diverse than just, um, especially men. I, I read a lot more, consciously read a lot more female authors in the last sort of five to seven years, because I met someone at work called, Carol, an Irish lady who's intimidatingly well-read. And, and we, we talk about books all the time. We go to see plays. We went to see all the Oscar Wilde plays when they were playing at the Strand, actually, a couple of years back. And uh, she said, you need to read more women. You need to read more women. You need to read Bronte. You need, and she listed them all. So I went on a huge diet of female writers. Looking back now, Murakami is actually, um, it's, I guess this is part of the joy of it. It's actually quite basic and Maybe it's sort of comfort reading. It's like sitting down with a bowl of cereal, um, reading Murakami. That's what it feels like. It's like listening to your favourite band, even though you know that in your heart, there's probably better bands out there and you you know that. And it certainly isn't Chopin, but you still come back to, you know, Blink-182 or whatever every so often and it's great. I'm doing Murakami a disservice there because he's not the Blink-182 of the writing world. He's more like the radio head of the writing world, but he's still not Chopin. Do you see what I mean? Oh, totally. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with comfort reading either. And, and people talk about guilty pleasures. I don't think there's actually... And I even, when we were chatting before this, this uh, you started recording, I mentioned a guilty pleasure. There's no such thing, really. I don't... I think we should drop that phrase, guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm. There's just pleasures, aren't there? And, read, and reading is just a virtue. It's a good thing, no matter who you read. But yeah, if anyone's not read Murakami, A, why not? And B, just, just start today. Because it'll make you feel, especially in these sorts of, I know everyone goes on about these times we're living in, but it's such a comfort to read him. And if you're you're a writer, an aspiring writer, reading something like that, the themes he tackles, which aren't always big, you know, world-saving themes. They're just everyday people struggling. Like it might be a guy in a bar that's um, upset because he's going through a divorce. Or it might be a painter that's struggling with a piece of work he's working on. You know, it's we're not talking about always talking about life and death with Murakami, but it just gets under your skin. I don't know how else to describe mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And they're always so riveting. Like they're they they're weirdly not plot heavy, but they're always it drives you through it like a thriller. So yeah, it's got it's got a bit of everything. So yeah, he absolutely inspired me to get going. Excellent. Yeah, no, he's fantastic. I first read him in grad school when a piano student's parent gave me a, a book of his as a Christmas gift. And I, I had not read Murakami before. And of course, being of Asian heritage, I was like, I'm, you know, like, I really need to get into this and learn more about yeah. that, my culture. And I just, they were in just in like in, engraved in my brain, like simplistic, but beautiful. And like you said, everyday plots, everyday stories, everyday people, but that's what made it so unforgettable, you know? Yeah, it's quotidian, but it's not banal. Mm-hmm. isn't it that's I guess that's our the best way to describe it it's like he makes the everyday interesting yes yes and heartbreaking yeah. in some aspects 
Yeah, that's that's yeah, absolutely. For me, the best books have brains, but they've also got a heart. And his 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 books are dripping with heart. Yeah, they're really sweet pieces of work, and also really sinister in parts as well. Really, really dark. Um, he's got range. The mm. boy's got range. Definitely. Oh yes. Oh yes. Yeah. Definitely. He's actually really massively into music as well. Um, so he owned a jazz bar before he became a writer. And his story that this is also quite inspiring for anyone that's thinking about a career in writing. He he uh, owned a jazz bar in Tokyo. And uh, I forget the name of it. I think it's called something to do with a cat. And uh, <laughs> he used to write after the shift. So he, you know, clean up the bar, do the till, lock the doors. And then he'd sit there and write for a bit. And then he wrote his first extended piece of work and submit it to a prize and he won that prize and that made him think oh maybe I could actually be a writer and so for a while he tried to work on his first novel whilst running a bar but then it got he decided to just go all in on the writing and then he sold his bar uh, because he's a huge jazz fan which is it comes up a lot in his books actually music and especially jazz and there was a book he released I think it was 2019 or something like that, very recently where it's a non-fiction book and it's basically him in conversation with some classical musician just just dissecting the world of music I remember um, seeing that yeah I yeah, haven't read it yeah. but I remember seeing that released mm, I haven't actually read that I don't yeah I don't really class that as one of his pieces of works pieces of work but um I should probably maybe ask for it for Christmas or something so in addition to Murakami, are there other authors who are your favorites or who sort of struck you, you and inspired you in, in similar ways? If you've been feeling burned out, stressed, overwhelmed, or exhausted, the resources and courses at the Self-Care Institute are here to support you. The Self-Care Institute was founded by Dr. Ami Kunimura and provides support for individuals and organizations with burnout prevention, burnout recovery, and stress management. I've personally taken a few of these courses and found them to be super helpful, both professionally and personally. The care you give yourself matters just as much as the care you give to others. But if self-care is difficult for you, you're not alone. And the Self-Care Institute is here to support your well-being, resilience, and sense of fulfillment at work and at home. For more information, visit selfcareinstitute.com or go to the show notes and click on the link. Love this question. This is probably my favorite question. And you need to be careful here because I'll probably talk for about three hours now. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but yeah. Oh my God, where to start? Um, David Foster Wallace. He's, he's my literary hero. He's, he's sadly not with us anymore, obviously, famously. But, oh my God, he's the Pele of writing. Of writing. He's someone that's just born with it. Um, I know he grew up in a very literary family. He's, I think his parents worked in academia. And he describes in Infinite Jest scenes around the dinner table where they're sort of trying to outdo each other on the vocabulary front. And you just know that's lifted from his life. Like, you can just picture it. And I love... I've loved every every single. What's amazing to me about Infinite Jest is it's obviously a, a thousand pages, but it's as tight as a drum. There's not an ounce of flab on that piece of work. I I can't even begin to imagine the fear that would have gone through his publisher's brain when he's delivered this manuscript and it's you know half a million words or whatever a stupid amount of words it is. But then when they started to read through it with their red pen at the ready, finding oh actually I'm on page a hundred here and I haven't had to touch 
this at all with my red pen. They must have just thought, oh my God, what is this? This is ridiculous. It's like it's like he's an alien or something. He's like it's like he's yeah, his command of language is astonishing and intimidating and inspiring. And um he's someone that you can just dip into as well. You don't have to you don't have to read Infinite Jest. You don't have to read The Pale King. You can read his collections of essays um that he did for the New Yorker, or you could read his short stories, which also happen to be the best short stories ever written as well. I mean, the guy was just, the word genius is banded around, but I mean, truly genius, truly genius, a real virtuoso. Everyone that listens to this podcast needs to immediately go and purchase some David Foster Wallace right now. It's not, it's it's literary fiction, right? So it's not mass, it's not plot driven. Um, that happens to be my, my cup of tea, but it's all about, it's all about the language and it's so creative and he's so free. There's some there's some short stories where he seems to invent his own dialect and his own format. Like you, you've just never seen it before. There's like boxes all over the pages pointing to each other and footnotes with footnotes, um, which sounds tedious and laborious, but it's really not. It's it's like choose your own adventure. It feels exciting to to read it and do buy it in physical form as well. I can't imagine that translates very well on a Kindle or, or other e-readers that are also available, by the way. Yeah, DFW is um, is the king, king of kings. And I really bitterly regret that, that his life is over. And it's so tragic the way it ended. And actually there's, um, if you're just intrigued about him as a person, love dogs as well. It's another thing that I absolutely, I go weak at the knees for dogs. And um, I, I, I adore dogs. And so I've never, never owned a dog, but I, I intend to one day when I've got the space for it. He owned lots of dogs. He adopted them. There's actually a really decent film with uh, the bloke from How I Met Your Mother, Jason Siegel. Jason Siegel? I want to say Jason Siegel. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he plays David Foster Wallace on this sort of infamous weekend that a journalist comes to interview him, do an extended interview at his house. Don't know where he lived. It looked like Minnesota. It looked freezing or something. And uh, yeah, it's really good, actually. I don't remember what it's called, but if you just IMDB Jason Siegel, if I've got that correct, it'll come up. And uh, it's 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 a good film. And once you've watched that, you'll undoubtedly want to pick up one of his books. So yeah, Derry Foster Wallace, um, Roberto Bolaño, um, a, Ch- a, a Chilean author or Chilean, as they say on CNN. And he's also got a magnum opus that's a thousand pages or pretty much a thousand pages. It's called 2666. And he wrote it when he had cancer. It was the last thing he wrote. He knew he was dying. And so I what I what I really love is when the authors, there's a real story behind it. Whenever there's a real story behind a piece of work, that adds value, that enriches it, sort of mystifies it for me. So he wrote this book when he was dying, slowly dying of cancer. And he wrote it in five volumes so that his children, so that his estate would make more money so that he could support his family after he was gone. And what's a true mark of the book's greatness is that his children read the manuscripts, plural, five, and said, no, dad, this has to be released as one piece of work. It's a masterpiece. You can't just chop it up into five. Appreciate that, but um, you need to release this as a book. And wow, it's um, it's incredible. It's it, it covers the whole globe. It covers the whole of the 20th century. And again, it's drum tight. I know this is in translation. It was written presumably Spanish. He's from Chile. Um, but the it's so it was less about the language for me and more about the 
the sort of breathtaking scope and range of it because it covers everything from academia to the drug cartels in the Sonoran Desert to boxing to politics to the World War II and the concentration camps it's it's truly epic and it just went by in a flash a thousand pages went by in a flash you know I told you before we started recording I slogged through 200 pages of Bleak House before Christmas and I've since put it on ice yeah a thousand pages of 2666 made felt like reading 10 pages of Bleak House it was so much fun his famous most famous work is probably the Savage Detectives um and you can spot Woody Harrelson reading The Savage Detectives in the movie Now You See Me, by the way. I spotted that on the trailer once, which is not as good as 2066, but it's not far off it. And um, there's the, everything I've ever read of Bologna is amazing. So Derry Foster Wallace, Roberto Bologna, Franz Kafka, Oscar Wilde. I, I think alongside David Foster Wallace, Oscar is probably the most naturally gifted uh, writer I've ever read. And, and when I'm talking about being gifted, I I value plot far less than I do language and the quality of the prose. And uh, obviously, Oscar wrote mostly plays. But if you read De Profundis, his letter from prison to Alfred Bosey, which is the, I think I've thought of the right word, epigraph of this little dark place. There's a quote from it in, that, in this little dark place. The, the prose in that is astonishing. It's like a punch in the nose. It's it's um so angry, but so articulately angry. You know, when you've had an argument with someone and then you think afterwards, oh, I wish I'd said that. But in the moment, you can't because you just can't control your emotions and your language is, just becomes turd and you end up saying the worst put-downs ever. Well, Oscar Wilde had all the time in the world to think about the best put-downs, you know, of which he was the master anyway to begin with. Think about all the amazing withering one-liners in you know an ideal husband and earnest and all the rest of it. So he had ages to think about to reflect on his hatred for what had happened to him. And um the words burn on the page of from De Profundis, it's astonishing. And it's not it's not fiction, it's not fiction at all. Um so those four guys and I have to mention Ali Smith. Ali Smith, I think, is the best writer in the world today. Um, she's just, last summer, the fourth part of her court, her seasonal quartet came out. So in 2016, she released Autumn. And each front cover, and then, and then the following year, Winter, and then Spring, and then last summer, she released Summer. And... The, the artwork on the sleeves is beautiful. It's done by, it's digital artwork done by David Hockney. Because, you know, he works a lot on his computer now and produced, so he produced original pieces of artwork for the front cover of all three. So it's the same, if you look, if you Google it and go on Amazon or other book selling websites um, and you look at the front cover, it's of this tree in a country lane in some place in England, but of the tree in these different seasons. So it, it's sort of like a, you can see how the tree is like losing its leaves and then it grows them back. So this quartet of novels, she wrote at breakneck speed. And I went to see her talk at the British Library um, late in 2019. One of the last things I actually got to do before. So it might have been early 2020. And um, 
she was describing the process for writing these books and basically i mean she's highly she's well established so she could basically dictate terms to her publisher she could you know and she did she basically told them guys i want to write books in a matter of weeks so that they're super contemporary and i want you to print them and publish them within six to eight weeks um of me finishing them and the editing being done and they did it so she was in the, the thing that kicked the whole project off i think was brexit and um she so she wrote autumn the first one in the immediate aftermath of the referendum the eu referendum and so it's all about that and if you ever want a snapshot of what life is really like for i guess middle class-ish people in this country in this day read those books because it's spot on it's not just sort of a daily description of um, what it's like to go to prep for a coffee although you know that stuff's in there it goes back into history and it makes comparisons with things that have happened in the past um, you know world war ii is in there it's it links heavily to art and pop culture and music and um, niche cultural figures from the 60s and it's it's got loads of there's got a whole breadth of topics in there so there it's a real edifying experience just to read them anyway but if anyone's interested in america finding out what what is it was it actually like to live in england i know she's scottish but it's it mainly deals with england um read those books she was shortlisted for the booker for at least one of them maybe even two of them but weirdly she didn't win i don't know why so she's i guess she's my hero at the moment and i love the fact that she's an environmentalist and in an interview with the guardian she said something that was so profound and so basic and so just obvious. It just struck me and stuck with me. And it was, they were asking her about books and Brexit and politics and blah, 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 blah. And she said, none of this matters because climate change, full stop. And I was like, wow, of course, yeah, none of, of course, none of that is going to matter, is it? When we're all underwater in 65 years. So yeah, she's a, she's a real prophet and a beacon and everyone should seek her out. And, and quite apart from all of that important highfalutin stuff the prose is sublime and the lack of punctuation is so there is punctuation in there but it's not heavily punctuated it just feels that once your brain clicks with that it just feels good to read it it's so fast and you'll find you'll sit down with one of these books and then 50 pages have just flown by and it's there's no effort at all and there's no pretense with her the the vocabulary is I think it intentionally restrained. So um, I think that's the mark of a real confident writer when you can write in simple language, in, in simple sentences, that's the mark of confidence, I think. And someone that's really comfortable with the way of, with their voice on the page, looking back at the way I used to write first starting, it's full of massive words. It was full of like words I'd probably looked up to be honest with you in the thesaurus which is cringe cringe central um but now my language is i try and i try and take the lessons from the likes of ali smith and and keep it simple and i think it, it results in more elegant prose ultimately and more confident sounding prose and more pleasurable to read ultimately that's what it's all about so yeah those i i guess those five there's probably loads more i could probably just look around really and have a quick look no, I'll stick with them. I think that, no, John Banville. John Banville is an amazing linguist, I guess. I'm probably not using that right. But um, I read The Sea, which he won the Booker Prize for in, I think, 2005. And he, 
he does use big words and he's not afraid of them, but he uses them in a way that makes you think, oh, this guy probably just talks like that. So that it's acceptable. So and that, that, that's where I learned the word effluvia. So I like to use the word effluvia in conversation from time to time now. So, um, yeah, look that one up. There's tons more, but I guess they're the ones that spring to mind. It sounds like a really well-rounded group of authors as well. I've heard of some of them, but, you know, have not read all of them and, and I'm interested in, in reading Ali Smith for sure. Oh, you need to get on that. Definitely get on that. I'm looking over to my bookshelf now, actually, and um, I'm, I'm pretty content with the list, I think. A good list. It's kind of, it's almost like, you know, what would you Margaret take Atwood. to a desert island? Oh, yes, I love Margaret Atwood. Stick Atwood on there. Yes, yes. I, I wrote her a fan email once when I was in, in undergrad. I just finished reading The Handmaid's Tale and I was just blown away and I wrote her an email and told her how much I loved it. And she actually wrote back. And No way. Yes. Of course, I don't. You have an original piece of Margaret Atwood writing. Well, I used to. I think it was on my university email and I don't, I don't think I ever printed it off. You know how when you graduate, you know, they lock you out, you know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's amazing. Do you remember what she said? Something kind. You know, short sure and sweet, you know, she was, yeah. she's just a dear treasure to the world. Yeah, a good Canadian. Yes. You know, I've never actually gotten into the TV show. I'm, I'm so afraid that it will mar my memories and feeling of reading the book. Well, I can put your mind at rest, Tammy, because the TV show is fabulous. And it's got Elizabeth Moss in it, who happens to be, I think, the best actor in the world at the moment as well. She is very good. She does that like boiling rage, boiling kettle of rage look very well. I can picture her like sort of holding her breath to make her face tremble, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And she does that quite a lot in Handmaid's Tale. It's really excellent. Don't be afraid. Dive in. It's excellent. And actually it goes off in a tangent. What's really amazing about it is that there's, I'm not going to spoil any of this, but when she wrote The Testaments, it's over there. Is it called The Testaments? Yeah. When she wrote The Testaments, I have I've actually read it. <laughs> Um, some of the stuff that was happening in the TV show made its way into the Testaments. That's interesting. So have you read the Testaments? Not yet. Okay, I won't spoil it then, but definitely, oh, don't be afraid to read that either. I mean, it's not it's not going to have the same impact on you as The Handmaid's Tale would have, I imagine. You know, speak, objectively, it probably is just as good a piece of writing, but nothing's ever as good as the first time, is it? Mm. Um so, but yeah, read that and also watch the TV show. It's, it's great. It's really, really prestige telling. I'll have to, I'll have to put that watch on Watch with TV confidence. <laughs> Obviously, certain authors have inspired you, but are there other things like music or art that inspires you and your work? Oh, defo. Um, I mentioned Chopin before, and um, I, I love rock and roll and a lot of contemporary music, but... I, pr I probably regard Chopin's works as the pinnacle of music, of the music world. And there's a piece of music that's, it's, this isn't its official name, but it's called Raindrop. It's a piano piece. And I wrote a short story called Raindrop based on that. I, I listened to that a million times and it just made the story pop into my head about this little boy, this single mother with a, with a sort of precocious little boy who good on the piano and uh, then he disappears one night. So it's like a worst nightmare comes true. But then all this music starts to channel through her. And so she writes all this original music and she becomes a famous composer. And so she channels the grief of losing this boy. And then the boy sort of reappears in a Murakami-esque fashion. <laughs> 
mirror camera again. So Chopin, absolutely. I, I find that, um, yeah, that classical music especially, like, really moves me, mm. um, which, which sounds a bit pretentious, but it, it genuinely does. I, I, don't, I don't even know what it is about it. It seems to, especially just solo piano pieces, especially the likes of Chopin and, and Tristesse, the, you know, the obvious stuff. I am a bit of a dilettante, but I you know, I like the hits. But um, it moves me, and um, I it's it moves me in a really sort of profound, not not surface level kind of way. I don't really understand how it moves me because there's no words. I guess it just conjures in my my own head its own uh, stories. You know, like why why does this sound so sad, or why does that bit sound hopeful? And um, so that sort of stuff moves me um, and inspires me. All, all works of art, but uh, paintings especially. Um, I really, you know, if it's something like Gustav Klimt is my favourite painter. And um, I went to Vienna a couple of summers ago to, to the Leopold Gallery and saw some of his most famous works. And I could have just stood there all day, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is about it, but he paints women in this sort of weird, in this, in this ghostly way where it's almost photo real, their eyes especially, but at the same time, it's obviously painted. You know, like Rembrandt is like photorealistic. From a certain distance, it looks like a photo. But Gustav Klimt, it retains a sort of painted quality. But the eyes especially, and especially of the women, the Jewish women that he painted, was just like weirdly magnetic. And so similarly, I that tells a story to me as well. And like all sorts of things like what, why is she there? Like what, what's going on there? Why is there a skull next to her? What does that mean? Why is she holding a baby? Is the baby dead? You know, like what's all this, what's going on? Um, so there's layers and layers and layers to that. Yeah, painting Egon Schiele. He was also in the Leopold. Um, all those Dutch, all those miserable Dutch paintings as well from like the 18th century, where you've got paintings of, of women, especially indoors sort of with a bit of meagre sunlight shone on them and they're like maybe waiting for the mailman to come or waiting they always look like they're waiting that's what intrigues me so I always think what's the story behind that there's got to be a story behind that so I I regard painters as storytellers to be honest Mm -hmm, definitely Um, like Peter Bruegel as well like the middle ages painter used to paint these carnival-esque settings where of like town squares where you could spend all day just with a magnifying glass looking at a guy with a bale of hay over there and there's a guy getting drunk over there and there's a woman selling apples there but is she selling apples or is you know something else going on these weird like these like sort of collider almost kaleidoscopic looking images there's obviously a story going on there as well so yeah art galleries inspire me absolutely photography oh yeah modern photography um like cityscapes and candid pictures of people at parties, paintings of decrepit buildings and abandoned buildings. And I just think, what's the story there? Why is it abandoned? Is there someone in there right now? Is there maybe a vagrant in there? Or, you know, these, uh, there's painting. I went to see, there was an exhibition at the Tate Modern. I can't remember when. And it was these series of photos of uh, the 1980s. So like, you know, the cocaine nights era of London. And it was all these swanky parties with champagne and stuff. And, what was amazing to me was in these candid moments in the background, there's all these people look really unhappy uh, with their, sh- they're holding the champagne and they've got their expensive suits on and stuff. But why are they unhappy? What's going through their head? Interrogating photographs like that, I find fascinating and inspiring as well. 
because they're telling a story. So yeah, visual, I'm a visual person, visual learner. So paintings, photography, right, stuff like that. It's all very inspiring to me. Have you ever actually written anything based on a photograph or a painting that you've seen? I wrote, um, not really, not, not a famous painting that I've seen. I've seen that done in other novels. So I think I wanted to avoid doing that. But I photographs often play a part in my writing. And um, I wrote a book last year, which is not out yet. Hopefully it will be at some point. And there's a photograph that the main character finds quite early on of his uh, fiance of her when she was say 16 and she looks like a completely different person and she's been held up by three guys sort of like in a pin-up style I don't know if you can picture that but she you know led horizontally and three guys are holding her not in a creepy way just sort of last day of school joking around kind of way and he he goes deep into this photograph and for the whole book he sort of gets it out of his wallet every so often and looks at it and wonders what who those guys are what was going on there why she looks so sort of different in terms of her demeanor in that photograph. And is she, is she the same person now? Or is, can he, can he trust that? Which one's the real her basically? And um, so I play around with that um, in some other books as well. And I haven't written about a famous painting, but a critic in the Irish times described one of the scenes in this little dark place as Brugelian. So he's referring to the scene. The scene in the book is um, it's a, we would call it a gala day. Um, I guess it. I guess this, the most American comparison would be sort of Mardi Gras at New Orleans or New Orleans. Um, so similar th- sort of thing, like floats driving down the road, people drinking in the streets and stuff like that, party atmosphere. And this is sort of in the book. It's just after the Brexit votes happened and all these people are celebrating that. And uh, this critic said that that was Brugelian and... I guess he was right, and maybe I was picturing a, a brute, um, one of those paintings. So, yeah. So I haven't written, a, yeah, I haven't written about a painting, but I guess it came out in that way. Yeah, and it sounds like quite a compliment. Oh God, yeah, I took it as a massive compliment. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, oh yeah, of course. What a great way to describe <laughs> it. That's a way better way of describing my work than I could have done. I always think it's interesting, you know, like you have someone read something and or critique something of. of of yours, you know, and they're like, oh yeah, I totally see what you did here, 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 and then with these themes and this and that. And you're like, yeah, totally. Spot. <laughs> and you're like, I never know I did that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> That's happened a bunch of times. And yeah, you're right. Um, you just say, you just, I just sort of nod and go, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, interesting. Interesting perspective you've got there. You see, <laughs> yeah, a lot of, but there's a school of thought that, that says, okay, well, you might not have consciously written it with those mm-hmm. things in mind, but the subconscious is a powerful engine as well. So maybe it seeps out in that way. And do you know when you're talking any sort of meeting situation, especially a professional meeting situation, and you sort of off the cuff saying all these things, someone asks you for your opinion, they go, tell me, what do you think of this? And you just start talking, right? And you say, I think A and B and C. And actually, it had never occurred, A, B, and C had never occurred to you until the words have passed through your lips. So does the thought precede the utterance or the other way around? Do you make, do you solidify your own opinion because you've said it out loud? Or was the thought always there and you just vocalised it because you've just been given the platform to do so? 
So it might be the same with writing. You might start writing tomorrow. If I said to you, okay, write 500 words now about anything you want, something's just going to come out of you that's inside of you as we speak now. You know, you don't have time to think about it. So maybe it's the mm-hmm. same. And actually the, the way I write is there's not a lot of pre-thought that goes into it. There's, there's planning in terms of where I'm going next with the plot. But in terms of the actual act of sitting down and getting the prose down, I try and just get into a flow, like a zen-like state almost. It doesn't, it's not as pretentious as it sounds. I just mean, all I mean by that basically is I don't pour over every word and every line. I just trust the training. I just trust the practice. Um, and by training, I mean reading smarter people than me. And hopefully that just manifests in good quality prose, which it seems to. So maybe that's just what happens. Maybe the act is just externalizing something that you actually did genuinely think in the first place. So when people at parties say, oh, I thought this and I thought that. And it, in, instinctively you think, mm, I don't think I actually did. If you think about it, maybe you did. Reading is one of the best things you can do to be a better writer. And then of course, you know, everyone's got their own creative processes. Would you say you're more of a pantser or a plotter or a planter? Is planter in between? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, right. Just getting the vernacular right before I answer. Then I've been religious about plotting to this point. So I've written loads of books and um, I've always plotted them quite meticulously, actually. So I'll give myself what I think about as lily pads to leap from one scene to the next. I guess the equivalent would be when a filmmaker's storyboards. Um, I sort of do that. And then the actual dialogue and exposition and whatever else just comes out naturally when I sit down and, like I say, get into a flow. So I've done that until this book. But my agent suggested, um, you should have a go at like, literary fiction. And once I um, got my head around that, because that's all, I, that's all I read, basically, literary fiction, whatever that is. So once I got my head around that, I had to change my approach because I've always ended up writing books that are very plot-driven. And, you know, obviously This Little Dark Place is a thriller. It became more of a thriller in the publishing of it than it was originally. But now I'm writing my first intentionally literary novel. And so I didn't plot at all. My, my agent's advice was just, just see what comes out. So with that freedom, um, I still, as a legacy of my religious plotting, I still couldn't quite just sit down with an empty page. Was, that was a bit scary for me. So I, I still, Rather than think of a plot, I just thought about a couple of interesting people, characters. So I just came up with these siblings, Ronnie and Harriet, that live together. They're adults now. And I just started describing a day in the life of Ronnie and then describing a day in the life of Harriet. And a plot has just organically seemed to sprout from that. Um, So this is new for me, this process, and it was scary. In fact, it still is scary. I mean, I'm probably only a quarter of the way through the first draft. And it is scary, but it's also inspiring because it's, um, it's liberating. And I'm finding that with the freedom of plot, with the choice being, you know, in my hands every day where I can take this story next, that's also giving me freedom on the prose side of things as well. And I'm finding that the stuff I'm writing with this book is is a bit more it's not lyrical but it's just more creative I don't really I can't really think of a better word mm-hmm. because I'm not just jumping from the lily pad I'm currently on to the next lily pad 
I, I, you know, I'm, I could put a snorkel on and deep dive to the next lily pad, or I could uh, do the breaststroke, or I could do the backstroke. So it's all on the table. And that's scary, but also really exciting. So every day I sit down at this crummy old laptop to write, I'm like, okay, what? I kind of know what's going to happen next in this scene, but how am I going to describe that? How am I going to portray that? It's what's, what's interesting to me is that what's coming out is dark comedy. Mm. Mm. So I've previously written, um, I love comedy. We talked about this um, before we recorded, but um, I've always ended up writing things that are sort of emotional or sinister or dark, generally with someone dying in it. I don't really know why. Um, but this one, it's just coming out as, as funny and in a sinister, dark way, in sort of a peep show kind of way, which is really interesting to me and exciting. And I have no idea how my agent's going to react when she reads it. Um, I hope she isn't sort of just spitting feathers and wondering why she told me to try my hand at this. But um, I don't think she will. I, I, I Hopefully she'll have an open mind. But um, I'm really loving it, um, this, this process. And what I found during lockdown one, so March 2020, was I had this new book I was writing a thriller it was designed as an intentionally as a follow-up to this little dark place so I plotted that heavily and I was really grateful for the grounding it gave me the process driven way that I approached writing that book was really reassuring in that time because I was working from home every day like like everyone is now but at the time it was you know a departure having that anchor point of sitting down to write my 500 a day five days a week. That was the way I used to do it. 2,500 a week, uh, 2,500 a week, 10,000 a month was really reassuring to me. And, um, but this year, having grown entirely bored of lockdown and having grown entirely bored of working from home and completely used to it, I'm actually now grateful for the other way of approaching it with the sort of free fall, where am I going to land feeling of this new approach? So yeah, that's a lot. So that's the way lockdown it, it affected my work really so yeah we'll, we'll see what happens because now then there'll be a hybrid approach when we start going back in the office again later in the summer at least for half of the week you know so I'll be sitting here writing a couple of days a week and then the other three days of the week or two days a week I'll have to go back to the old way of working which was getting up early getting my 500 words done and then getting on the tube to get to go to the office maybe that'll produce even more interesting and exciting results who knows watch this space I'll send you a copy of the second draft if you want. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Especially as a person who, the way you described writing writing this current piece where you just sit down and you just see what comes out, that's how I write all the time. Is it? Um, it, it is. I. It's that's very nice. hard for me to write the other way. I've tried and it's like being pinned to a table, you know? Painful. Um, you know, it, yes. <laughs> you know, so the other way is just so freeing and, and you just... And uh, you just never know. It's like getting in the car without a destination and being like, okay, I'm going to take a road trip. I like that. You just never know what, what you're going to encounter. You, know? you could run out of petrol, though. True. And that would be a story. <laughs> that would be a plot point. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As long as you've got a notebook with you, then there's no wasted day. Yes. Very true. But that is very interesting about your creative process. You're trying to change or experiment with your own creative process after doing something for so long and how it's the antithesis of what's going on in your real life. You know, like you're trying to be more creative and free during a time in which you are locked 
down you know it's like yeah. you couldn't get out in the real world but you can get out in the on the page i think that's a really good analysis um and the way you just put that that sounds right you know maybe it was something i was looking for uh, my agent to suggest this uh, was a blessing because maybe i was just looking for a way to express way to feel free because we're very much not free at the moment. I mean, I am not, I'm not an anti-lockdown person. They, they go around saying we're not free. You know what I mean by that? I'm not genuinely saying my freedom has been taken away from me, but it feels a bit more com- uh, restricted, a bit more confined way of living. So maybe this is my way of having taken some freedom back. But I'll stick, I'll, I'm going to stick with it. Yeah. Curious to see how it turns out. And, and I'm very curious to see if it will sort of bleed into other projects after that, or if you'll even mold a whole new version of a creative process with a mix of the lily pads and the mix of the just see where it goes maybe yeah maybe there's a hybrid thriller and literary crossover in there in the future but my agent envisages doing the as hatch stuff you know the thrillers and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. aimed at the crime reading audience and then maybe under a slightly different name um doing the literary stuff as a different strand and I like that. I like the delineation. And I think maybe I'll flip flop between the two. So after I've written this book, I'll probably go back. So I've got loads ready to go, like fully plotted in my iPhone. I don't mean written in the iPhone. I mean like the plot in the notes. So, you know, I could start writing one tomorrow. So maybe I'll, I'll probably flip flop between thriller, literary, thriller, literary. And, you know, it doesn't matter what happens with them. I love doing it. So I'll be doing it for the rest of my life. I know I will. Every so often you get the hump with it, like every writer does. And you just think I'm the worst writer in the world. No one's ever been worse than me. But then you actually read it back. Sometimes even just a few hours later and think, oh, actually, <laughs> that's really good. What was I worried about? I'm, fi- I'm pretty sure that's something all writers can relate to. Even, you know, the Hilary Mantels of the world, like double Booker Prize winners. I bet even she has moments where she's like, oh, but then later on, maybe after a cup of tea or something, she'll go, oh, actually, it's pretty good. I'm not bad at this. And I go through that every day. It's horrible. It's it's obsessive and um, it, it sort of dictates my mental state. And I think there's a really good quote. I'm not going to try and quote it verbatim, but I'll, I'll paraphrase it. Um, by I think it was Hemingway. If I haven't written anything, I'm miserable. If I'm going, if I haven't... It, if I'm going to write something, but I haven't done it yet, I'm miserable. The only happy state is having just written something. And it's true. So it's like a drug addiction, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's so true. It's like when I've written 350 words or 400 words of good prose, and I'll like wheel back away from the desk a little bit and then make the robot woman on Word read it aloud to me, and it sounds all right, I'll think, actually, this world's not too bad, is it? Like I can I can handle this life. But then... If I go a day where I've been too busy to write just because of the day job or whatever else, moving house or United are on, or I'm miserable because United have lost again. So I haven't written anything that day. I'll be like, oh, why am I so down in the dumps? And I know why. It's because I haven't written anything. So it's like an addict when he can't get hold of his fix. I guess that's the best, the closest comparison, really. Um, but this is, I guess there's no, um, there's no, danger of overdosing or yeah there's definitely uh, valleys and hills of the writing process we're gonna take a short break and when we come back we'll talk more with author andrew hatch about his life in the creative arts 
please consider saving the lives of the popular wiener dog breed, also known as Dachshunds. One such organization is Dachshund Rescue of Houston. They're an entirely volunteer-based 501c3 organization that rescues and rehomes dogs through their foster network. If you'd like to learn more or to make a donation, visit dro.org. That's D-R-O-H dot org. And thanks always for listening. Hey, listeners, if you're looking for more podcasts like mine, Creative Piecemeal, check out the Music Therapy Podcast, Musician's Dish with Robin and Audra, Inside the Musician's Brain with Christopher Pandolfi, Rhapsody in Reverie, or even Entrepreneur Creative Careers Podcast, all available to stream on your favorite podcast app. And we're back with author Andrew Hatch. Hello again. And how has your life in the creative arts been different than you imagined? Oh, wow. It's been very different. I mean, I had uh, an image of what it would be like before, and I think that was mostly through TV. I thought that when you got a book deal, you'd be taken to the, <laughs> taken to the office and you'd all clink glasses and get, and get drunk on champagne and then toast your success. And, uh, and then you'd go away and sell 85,000 copies in the first month and then they'd be offering you more, <laughs> more money for the next book. Didn't really happen like that. Um, the reality of it was, um, look, it was super exciting for me. Um, it was all, this, this is all I've ever wanted to do. Um, and it was my, my life ambition to get traditionally published. So it really was a dream come true when that happened. But the way, the way it happened was, I don't know, a little bit more mundane than, than people might think. Um, certainly was for me. It was all, I mean, I've met, I, the most exciting point for me really was when, you know, when you're querying, everyone's been there and you're querying, you're trying to get an agent. I was querying agents when I lived in Australia for a brief time. So I was querying agents with, uh, you know, you mentioned in the preamble, Los Gigantes, the novel. So I wrote that back in like 2012. And uh, so I submitted that to a bunch of agents in Melbourne and in London. I was living in Melbourne. And uh, a couple of them were really interested, including the one I'm now with. But what happened with that book was the London-based agent wanted an exclusive read of it. So when you submit the first sort of three chapters or whatever, 12,000 words, they've all got different requirements. So check that. It's often on their website. Once, you, once you've submitted that original excerpt, they'll either say, thanks, but no thanks, or can we read the whole thing? Or can we read it exclusively? As in, we don't want anyone else to read it whilst we're reading it, which is a good sign. So they did that. And I obviously said yes. So the Melbourne one was out of the running. So a bit of a gamble for the writer, but at the same time, if anyone shows any interest, you snap their hand off. A few months went by, they got back to me to say, we finished it, love it. We just want to do a few things. Would you be up for that? And so I said, yeah, okay. Depends what they are. So then I worked with um, this agent's sort of editorial person for a couple of months over the summer of 2012. And um, in the September of that year, the owner of the company, who's now my agent, actually, um, ultimately passed on it. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because that was a real blow. I mean, like, that was a hammer blow, not only to like all the work I'd put in that summer. It just felt like 
God, publishing, the publishing industry is this impenetrable thing. How the hell are you meant to crack that egg? When I got that rejection at the very final stage with this agent, I just was floored by it. But fast forward to 20, when was it? 2016, I wrote a book called The Moorings, which is a, a romantic, sort of a romantic coming of age novel. And I had been so afraid of sending any work to any agents since that happened in 2012 that it took me basically nearly four years to submit again. And I just thought, you know what, face your fear. Although I can't take my own medicine because I'm still terrified of spiders. And whenever one appears, I'm just out of the room. If it's of a certain size, I can deal with the tiny ones now. But, you know, so that's growth. But face your fears. So I thought, right, send this book to that agent who rejected you. Just see what happens. Because you regret it if you don't. And what actually happened was, and this is when um, you asked me what the experience of the, of the creative industry is like or something like that. The moment I, the, the, this is still the best moment to this day, including the moment I got the offer of the publishing deal from the publisher a couple of years later. I was working out in my flat. It was summer 2016. I had practically forgotten about the submission I had made because I just thought, well, that doesn't happen. That's not going to happen. You know, it's uh, at least I tried. And then out of the blue, I just got this email saying, uh, we've read your new novel and we just want to say we remember you from 2012 and we're so grateful you stuck with us because we want to meet with you to discuss representation for the you know for your work so that was that was even if I had never gotten published after that I would always have had that moment and it was just what probably the best moment of my life in terms of professionally professional moment I think the best moment of my life is when United won the Champions League in, in 1999. But that was a close second or third. <laughs> um, yeah, but in all seriousness, it was, a, it was a really sweet moment and vindication. And, you know, it restored my self-esteem and my confidence. And it was a real a good, strong, positive start to my career in, in the professional world of writing. And it was amazing. And we had this great meeting the following week where they sort of gushed about this novel that I'd written, which was so bizarre to me and so surreal because no one, you know, no one had, virtually no one had ever read my work before. A few close friends had. But to hear these professionals describe and quote my own words back to me was so surreal. It honestly felt like a dream. I remember the day the meeting was set up, I, I really ummed and ahed over my outfit and I chose a white shirt, I just went for a classic sort of white shirt, blue trousers, and I slicked my hair back, I think. And yeah, I probably looked so nervous. Um, and what was funny was she was like a spider. She was as nervous about me as I was about her because I think she assumed I had multiple offers on the table because when I went in there, she said, so after, you know, we chit-chatted, had a biscuit, she was like, so are you interested? And that was her saying that to me. So I was sort of under the impression that it was already agreed. So in my naivety, so I, I said, well, yeah, obviously, <laughs> of course. And we all, we all laughed because we were all sort of afraid of who was going to speak first. And um, they didn't know if I was going there to drive a hard deal. And I didn't, I didn't know if they were actually going to offer a contract or not. But they did. And um, yeah, that was um, that was an amazing moment. 
then uh, getting a publisher um, takes longer than you think. So that was one thing that surprised me. So we didn't find a publisher for that first novel. Got very, very close to a deal with uh, Transworld, who were a major publisher. Um, they did uh, Girl on the Train and The Book Thief. So major successes. And they were really interested in the moorings. And what was really heartbreaking was in December of 2016. So this was about, uh, I signed with Eve White in August 2016. The moorings, we did a bit of polishing. The moorings went out on submission that November. There was immediate interest from Transworld and a couple of others. Transworld were the most serious. And their senior commissioning editor was very complimentary. She was saying things like, oh, we really need more young literary male authors. So Andrew fits the bill, like, you know, we could see, grow him, you know, that sort of stuff. Really exciting stuff to hear as a, I think I was 30 then, 31. And uh, it got all the way through to the acquisition. So it got read by her team. They'd all signed off on it. Got through to the acquisitions meeting, which is basically the final stage where it's the round table meeting where the editorial team pitched the books that they want the company to acquire to the marketing guys and girls, to the sales girls and guys and everyone else, or, you know, the heads of those departments. And um, they couldn't get it over, the, she couldn't get it over the line. Um, the sales team vetoed the deal. And the reason being was um, something nebulous, like, oh, we don't know if we, if it will, if we can clearly market it in one genre or another, because it seems to straddle commercial fiction and literary fiction. It seems to straddle romance and dark, whatever, thrillers. So because they didn't have the vision to, I, I sound bitter because I am, um, because they didn't have the vision to think of a way to effectively market the book, they just decided not to buy the book. Um, so that was, that was, really horrible that was a really bad day but to get that close Tammy was was awful um but what happened was I, I licked my wounds for a couple of weeks and then in on New Year's Day 2017 I thought back in on all of the Christmas period which was a really miserable Christmas because of that I was thinking about okay what would a successful person do in this moment and a successful person well, they wouldn't slope off and hide in their den and start, you know, binging on Breaking Bad with some Pringles. They'd get back on the horse, wouldn't they? And they'd start riding again. So over that period, I start. I actually, that's when I read Dave Fundis by Oscar Wilde. So an angry book. I wanted to read something angry. So I read that. And I had always had this idea in my head about um, someone in prison corresponding with someone on the outside and then, some, you know, a relationship forming through that. And that I actually, that's why I sought out Day Profundis, because I knew, I knew what it was about. So I, I read that and then it just started to come into my head, this plot. And then on New Year's Day, I sat down and I wrote the first page of this, what became this little dark place. It was called October then. And so the act of writing was pure therapy. I, within, but before the end of January, before the middle of January, 2017, I was over it. I, I was I was like, what's the Moorings? I can't even, I don't even care about that book. I'm obsessed with this new book. I couldn't think of anything other than this book I was writing. I said to my agent, um, I'm working on something new, which she, you know, was obviously very, she said, it, look, it happens, deals fall through, you're brand new, just 
get back on the horse, write something. So I told her, I'm writing something new. And I think I mentioned earlier in this interview, um, I, I do 10,000 words a month. Uh, well, that was my old process. So I, I worked out the length of the book that I wanted it to be, factoring in a bit of editing time. I said, I'll have a first draft with you in October. So she was like, okay, cool. So um, she rang me in October. She'd obviously diarized it. She rang me when I was in the office in, in October. We'd, we'd, we'd emailed and stuff over the summer. How's it going? How's the book? She rang me in October and she was like, right, so... I'm ringing you because you said you'd have a book ready in October. And I was like, I was actually just in the, in the process of drafting an email to you, attaching it <laughs> as a first draft. And um, she was like, wow, okay. You're like, a, that's like clockwork. So she said, how many words is it? And I told her it's 134,000 words. And she was like, oh. And I was like, is that a problem? She said, for, mm, for a debut, <laughs> I don't think we're going to, yeah, you need to get rid of a load of words. I was like, how many words? She was like, maybe half. So I was like, oh, my God. So um, I was going to see Salman Rushdie speak about his new novel like that week with my Irish friend, Carol, who I told you about earlier, who told me to read Bronte. And... Um, so I queued up to meet Salman Rushdie and get my book signed. And, you know, like a, like a dithering idiot, I, I sort of, with a shaky voice, spoke to him. I was like, Salman, a bit of advice for a young author. And he's like, go on. <laughs> and in the middle of signing, he sort of like closes the book and looks at me, go on. So I was like, right, I've just written this book and um, my agent said it's too long, um, but I don't think I can cut the amount of words that she wants me to cut. And he was like, just do the cuts. He was like, shorter is better. Wow, great advice. Um, we went on holiday, me and my other half, to Greece. And all I was thinking about the whole holiday was, oh, God, right, which bits am I going to have to lose here? I loved them all. That was the problem. But actually, if you look at it with um, objectivity, um, it's not all great. It never is, unless you're David Foster Wallace. Um, so I, by the time I got back from holiday, I knew the bits that could go more easily and I got it down to about 95,000, took another week, got it down to about 89,000 and then I submitted it to the agent. And so this was like late October. So nearly 10 months, like to the day since the Transworld deal fell through at the last stage. And then, then I was really on spilkers because, because, you know, I was really scared about, hadn't really revealed anything about this book to her. Hadn't told her what it was about. Hadn't told her, all she knew was the, the general gist, you know, prison, correspondence, blah, 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 Oscar Wilde. And um, I think on Halloween, um, which is actually the date in the book is really important because stuff happens on Halloween. And she emailed me to say, I've just cried, finished your book, and I've just cried. Um, you are so clever. And it was like, oh, my, my body just sort of released energy. Like, I felt like I was on cloud nine. Couldn't believe it. And then, her, you know, her editorial assistant felt the same way. 
So I knew I'd done something right. And uh, because I didn't, uh, it, it always crosses your mind, was the last one a fluke? Can I do it again? Did I just get lucky? Did it strike a chord with someone who happened to be in the right mood? So to write another one and to get that sort of um, review of it was incredible. And then, so we had a meeting where she laid out the tactics for the submission round. Um, we're going to send it to XYZ publisher. Um, and if that doesn't work, we'll send it to ABC. So um, what was interesting was the first round of submissions went pretty badly. Um, there wasn't much interest at all. And we went for some drinks, me and my agent and her assistant near her uh, flat in Pimlico, lovely area. Can't afford, I couldn't afford to live there. We went for cocktails and we discussed potential edits and we all had some ideas. And basically I, I, I unclogged a little bit of story that was of backstory that was maybe a little bit of a barrier to getting into the book. And once we did that, we got loads of interest. So it was almost like, like you showed me your French fry sunglasses before. It was almost like removing semi-opaque sunglasses for these publishers. It was like, oh, they finally got it. So then there was a bunch of interest. And the publisher that finally I went with um, were very complimentary. And um, something nice they really said was, it's obvious Andrew's got something special. And I'll never forget that, even if I never get published again, because all I had ever wanted was to be good at one thing in life. Like I'm a pretty middle of the road drummer. I'm an okay singer. I was rubbish at football, um, but you know, I'm pretty good at writing. And I, I know that now. And um, it's taken me years to be able to actually say that and with confidence. And it's things like that, like the, the, the commissioning editor saying, it's pretty clear he's got something special. So the deal was done in April. So, you know, it takes a long bloody time, you know, maybe four or five months. Deal was done in April. And then we spent that summer editing it. And I loved that process. I really genuinely loved that work. Um, I think any true writer would love that work. And any true writer would welcome the critique that you get through that process. And if you read the acknowledgements in this little dark place, I thank Cecily Gayford, who is my editor, for pushing me. And she made the work better. And that is the ultimate compliment. And you just have to enter that process with humility. And especially as a debut author, you have to you have to have humility. And ultimately, you become a better writer through that process. And I've got nothing but praise for, for her and, and her genius and her insight really and what another thing that surprised me about the publishing industry was how bloody clever they all are like these people notice things I just never would notice I don't mean mistakes there weren't many there weren't many mistakes um there's no certainly no grammar mistakes but I just mean things like oh maybe if um, this scene came a few pages later then these things would happen and so think about that and you're like oh my god yeah that's brilliant um, obviously they've been doing it for their you know livelihood for years so they know a thing or two about how to structure a novel but I was just watching them do this with it all and um, 
yeah, it's amazing. It was a real, it was, I would say with humility, it was a team effort. It's my name on the front cover, but there's so many clever people that go behind it. Um, and um, yeah, it was, it was really exciting. Um, all the way through to the marketing meetings we had where they'd come up with these amazing boxes. I mean, uh, there's a wooden box in the book, which is a key um, item no spoilers but there's a big wooden crate in the book which when you read it you'll see why it's important and what the marketing marketing department did for serpent's tail they made they made um wooden boxes and got them all painted with this little dark place logo on it and inside there was this it was sort of like a, a bunch of easter eggs photographs of twins torn down the middle a prescription for drugs and all these items that are clues to what was in the book I couldn't I couldn't believe the effort and uh, expertise that went into that. Um, everything's everything's planned so so precisely. Like we're gonna we're gonna write to these magazines in this month. We're gonna write to these newspapers in that month. We're gonna get you on these podcasts. We're gonna get you these festivals, and then by that point, this will happen and blah blah blah. And I was just like, yeah, okay, cool. This sounds amazing. This is a dream. So there were some, you know, really cool moments like that where it was like you think it's going to be. And there was, you know, a nice summer. The publisher throws a party every summer. So I got to meet Sarah Perry, who met, you know, the Essex Serpent and Mel Moth. She's, she's their cash cow, really. The, she's the big hitter at that publisher. And um, it was really cool to meet her. And actually think of her as obviously not, I'm not, I'm not there yet in terms of sales, certainly no one here. But um, we were both published by the same people. So we were both authors at this, you know, this party. And that was really weird to me. And another really cool moment was, I know I'm going off piste with, from what you actually asked me, but I went to Waterstones, which is a chain of bookstores in this country. And um, I saw one of my favourite authors, Michel Huelbeck, who's French. Um a French author, really contemporary, writes ex exactly the sort of stuff. It's almost as though he's designed it for me. It's sort of lurid, dark, humorous, obscene stuff. And it's amazing, especially atomized um, or the elementary particles, depending on which language you read it in. And I saw one of his books on the shelf. And in addition of that book, I had read it, but not this edition of it. And I picked it up and it was published by my publisher. And I couldn't believe it. I, I took to, I was so moved by this. I took to Instagram, which is very unlike me. And I was like, I've just, look at this. I've just seen one of my heroes. And we are published by the same people. So that was amazing to me. Um, yeah, so it was, it was really cool. Um, and a lot of surprising things, like the length of time it took to get the book on the shelves. I listened to one of your podcasts earlier with the romance author, and she said the same thing. But it is a very long process. Um, and you need stamina, you need legs to, for this industry, you need a thick skin um, because you still, still after you're a published author, you still get rejected. Let me tell you, you still get rejected. Um, so get ready for that, um, people, if you want to do this. But, um, but you know what? It's, it's really worth it. And um, it's, it was super exciting and it was a dream come true. And I'm now striving to make that happen a second time. And then I will strive to make it happen a third time. And um, yeah, so that's, that's where I am. Excellent. And, you know, and it's all you can do is, is just keep going and keep growing and 
creating and exploring and seeing what output comes. You know, there's rejection across every field of the creative and fine arts, but I noticed that, you know, when someone has such a drive and such a passion, like, yes, the rejection is going to hurt, but you can still get up and rise from the ashes and keep going, you know, because the passion is just there and you just can't help it. You can't get off the passion train. You can't not create. Absolutely. Yeah. You become this wizened, toughened creature through the rejections and it makes you look inward for new routes to creativity because, you know, the definition of, it, of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. So you need to change your angle of approach. You need to put a bit of topspin on the ball this time or a bit of slice on the ball this time. Um, you know, don't just hit it through the centre of the racket. You know, you'll just get it batted straight back. So it forces you to evolve. It forces you to grow creatively. And, and actually, when you watch documentaries about all the successful artists, you know, people like Nina Simone, who we now regard as... I would probably say maybe the most naturally gifted vocalist I've ever heard of that style, of that style. Um, the, God, the rejection and the hardship she went through to get to where she was, was insane. And there's another documentary as well, another one about singers, where I think it's called 20 Feet from Stardom on Netflix. And it's about backing singers um, and what they have to go through to get a slice of success for themselves and people that are really really seasoned performers that just can't get a record deal as, a, as an artist in their own right and so this you know there's many ways to success but they're all booby trapped um you just have to be ready to dodge them and get indiana jones on their ass and leap around a bit and stay on your feet if you can. And if you get knocked off your feet then cling on with your hands instead, but um, it's a long, it's a long journey, but nothing that is worth doing is easy. I know that is such a platitude, but it's so true. It's just true. If it, if, if it's hard, it's probably because it, there's value in doing it. Right. Right. And, you know, and sometimes things can come easy and you can be talented at it, but there's still a journey, you know, it's still difficult. You know, along those lines, how would you like to be remembered as an author? I'd like to be remembered as someone that could put a sentence together. I honestly, I mean, I admire all authors. Um, you know, I admire authors that are entirely concerned with plot and telling a darn good yarn. Uh, and I read them, you know, I love them. And uh, the same with um, screenwriters. I, I would love to be a screenwriter one day. Uh, I think I will try my hand at that because, you know, proper films, when they're written well, they I regard them as pieces of literature. They Telling a story, they, there's a real art to that. There's a science to it, but it's I think it's 70-30 in favour of art. But when what I mean by I want to be remembered as a guy that could put a sentence together, I mean... I'm, re I'm referring to writing as an art form in its purest sense of expression. You know, when people talk about the likes of Ernest Hemingway, that's the obvious one, isn't it? People always talk about Hemingway as having this really distilled way of writing, this really uh, apparently simple way of writing. And, you know, he was, a, he was uh, seeking the true sentence or whatever it was, uh, the perfect way to write a sentence. That's, that's the craft and I want to be remembered as a crafts as a as a craftsman, 
it's great if people read this little dark place to me and and it's great to me if they if they just remark on the story and how it moved them and how the ending totally uh, like um, sent them off balance and all that stuff and those are techniques that you can learn and implement as a writer um and you, you get sharper at that through the editing process but what i would prefer is what i prefer is when people say oh i liked when you said this or i like this observation or i like that bit of language or you write beautifully or something like that that means more to me than someone saying oh that, yeah really cool story I guess there's a happy medium where you can tell a great story with beautiful language. That's the ultimate. Uh, and God, there's people out there that do that. And they win, they win the Booker Prize most years. Um, Margaret Atwood's a great example. I don't regard Margaret Atwood as one of the great sentence creators. I mean, I, I don't think she would regard herself as like obsessed with prose. Her prose is beautiful and it's you know, elegant and simple. Um, I think the, the beauty is in the simplicity of the best writing. And like I said earlier, the mark of a confident writer is one that can write in a simple way, like Ali Smith. So I would like to be remembered as, 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 a, as an artist, really, not someone that creates products that sell loads. Of, like, you know, publishers are always looking for the next girl on the train or the next um, the silent patient or whatever sold two million copies last year they want that now and yeah wow wouldn't it be great for a publisher to say all right we want to put some money behind you to write that sort of stuff and um who was who would say no to that hats off to them who can do it but i would i would be completely happy with a career with more modest levels of success commercially but i was recognized by other writers as a great writer you know i think i mentioned earlier i've only ever wanted to be good at one thing if i used to say when i was a kid um my only ambitions in life are to enjoy myself and to feel proud of myself and i've been saying that since i was about eight and i still believe that today uh, and you can ask my mom i genuinely did used to say that and so that ties in with that i've only ever wanted to be truly great at one thing um you know, I'm not a polymath, I'm not Da Vinci or that dude from Iron Maiden who can fly planes and perform surgery or something stupid like that. One thing, that's enough for me. So if I can be remembered as a great writer, a guy that can put a sentence together, God, he can put a sentence together, like that sort of thing. I want people to see me in the street and go, I know who that guy is. He, <laughs> God, he can put a sentence together. I'd be happy with that. That sounds great. Definitely, definitely a wonderful thing to aspire to. And I, I think you can definitely put a sentence together, but I am just one person. <laughs> that's fine. I'll take it. That's, that's There you go. Boom. Your life is complete. <laughs> it is. It is. No, it does. It genuinely means a lot. I mean, you, you're a writer yourself. You're a creative person. It doesn't mean a lot. It doesn't matter who says it. It means a lot every time. So sincerely, Tammy, thank you for that compliment. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> um, one final question Oh, are we at the end? Sadly, for yeah. now, for now. Okay. One final question is, um, what does living a creative life mean to you? Good question. Um, for me, I would say living a creative life means obsession. And by that, I mean, for example, I was walking through Southwark Park this morning. That's the only way I can get my steps now because I'm not going to the office at the moment. So I go to Southwark Park every morning and that's where I do all my best thinking. I get, I get to look at all the dogs chasing the birds idiotically and admire them. And that's where I do my best thinking. I was thinking this morning obsessively about 
the scene I wrote yesterday in my work in progress. And then I thought about it on the way home. And then when I logged into work and I was in a meeting, I was thinking about it then. And I was thinking about it when I was making my salmon and cream cheese sandwich. And I was thinking about it when I was eating the sandwich. You can see where I'm going. That for me is that marks out a creative person, whether you're writing a piece of music or you're working on a painting, it's all you can think about. It keeps me up at night. It stresses me out. It, it makes me happy. It makes me sad. It makes me despondent. It makes me joyous. And it's, and I'm grateful for the obsession. I welcome it. Um, it's draining, but for me, a creative mind, a creative brain has to operate like that. You have to, if you, if you have aspirations to be great at something, you have, you have to be obsessed with it. And I, I would like to become great at this thing. I'm not yet. Um, I would like to become that. So it's practice. It's, um, it's training. So whether you're sitting at your laptop or you're in a coffee shop with a notepad or not, if you're just walking through the park, you can still be training. You can be thinking about it. You can be thinking, oh, should I have said, should I have stuck to the rule of not using adverbs? Should I have said, should I have just said, she said instead of she called and that sort of stuff bothers the creative person it's like um some painters are famously just dissatisfied with their own work and they just constantly go back and dab more paint on here and there and clean bits of paint off there and scrape bits off here and they would be doing that for years and years and years if they could um but the paintings get purchased and that's the only thing that stops them i think that's a creative life a creative mind um so obsession, healthy obsession, <laughs> if there's such a thing. Right. Yes. <laughs> I definitely think, you know, when someone finds their niche and finds their creative purpose in life, you know, it's hard to not be obsessed, you know, because it's, it's, it's all consuming because it fulfills your soul. Mm, that's a good way of describing it. Absolutely. Yeah, it does. It does fill your soul. And it provides you, it provides me with balance as well. I would genuinely feel lopsided without having a project on the go. I would feel like I was sort of listing into like miserable, like um, just professional mediocrity. I would, if the only thing I had to think about was the meeting I've got tomorrow at my day job, I think I'd be really depressed. So it balances me out. It tugs me in the other direction and straightens me out. So it's good for mental health as well. It's bad and good. It is. It is. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Andrew Hatch, thank you so much for joining the podcast. And listeners, in the show notes, you can click on links to check out his websites and links to purchase his books. And there will also be links for his social media so you can connect and chat with him about books and music. Yeah, and I will respond. Excellent. Thank you again. Thanks for having me, Tommy. It's been so much fun. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Like the show? Have a question? Stop by the Facebook and Instagram pages. Links are in the show notes or search for a creative piecemeal podcast on social media and click follow for all the latest.